Now, as we return to Matthew 10, Matthew 10, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew 10, and let's go ahead and read the Scriptures. And what we do here at Faith Bible Church, we stand for the reading of God's Word because when the Scripture speaks, God speaks. And so I'm going to go ahead and read, um, starting from chapter 10, verse 1, up to our passage today, which is which is 24 through 33, but I'll give, read from verse 1 just to give us some context. Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew's brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the last sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim to, uh, as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick... Raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. Whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows." So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. You may be seated. 
Remember, and this is why I read all of that section, I wanted to remind you of the context and remind you of the mission parameters that Jesus is giving to his 12 disciples. This is a mission to Israel, as specific to the 12 apostles at this point in time. But what we've been saying is for Matthew's audience and for us, there are principles, there are timeless principles that are there for us. And so even as we read this and we read these instructions for the 12, Matthew's intending, okay, there's principles there for his audience, there's principles there for us. Really the mission though, in that first section, really uh, verses 5 through through. 13, that was that first section, and Jesus gave the parameters of the mission. Sorry, 5 through 15 uh, gave the parameters of that mission. And the core of that mission is this. Proclaim as kingdom representatives, as ambassadors, that's what an apostle is, they're emissaries, they're ambassadors, they're representatives who speak on behalf of Jesus. And he's saying, what message do you give The kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And like what Jesus said and John the Baptist before them, the call is repentance. The summons, the command is repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And that's the same message that we also bring. But then what happens in the rest of this chapter is Jesus lays out, here's how people are going to respond. Here's how people are going to respond to that message And so Jesus tells everything ahead of time. Jesus doesn't pull a bait and switch. He tells people exactly what's going to happen ahead of time. Here are the responses of people. And then here's how you respond to those responses. And so last week we talked about the reality that uh, those closest to you are going to hand you over to the authorities, to religious and political authorities, because they hate you because of me. Uh, They hate the message of Jesus and the kingdom, and so you're going to be handed over. You're going to be handed over to the authorities. He tells them ahead of time. But then this week, we see another response from people, and it's in the same general context, but it helps us too, because when you think about proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, proclaiming Christ's exclusive claims as king on the world, we are kingdom representatives. We are part of a local embassy, a faith Bible church, an extension of Jesus' kingdom in foreign territory. We are his representatives as ambassadors, and we speak for him. And when we speak for him as an ambassador, and we speak the gospel, and we say, friend, You and I are sinners before a holy God, and we deserve his wrath, and we will experience his wrath unless we repent and entrust ourselves to the king who has died in behalf of his people, for those who will entrust themselves to him. Well, People don't like that message, do they? And so it's easy to be afraid. It's easy to be afraid when we evangelize. We're familiar with fear in our culture. We know that. It's been piped through our televisions the last couple years. Be afraid. Be afraid. And we get afraid, don't we, when we speak or when we're supposed to speak the gospel to those around us. I'm no exception. We, we, feel, we know that feeling when I should proclaim Christ to that person. I should bring up a spiritual conversation, but I just feel that, that you know that gut feeling. Am I going to speak or am I not? And there's fear. Well, Jesus is going to help us this morning because he's going to tell us how do you deal with that fear? How do you deal with that fear of people? And so the big idea this morning 
that Matthew has, that Jesus has, and that's there for us is this. Do not fear opponents to the kingdom, but fear your sovereign, wrathful, and loving Heavenly Father and confess allegiance to Christ. Let me say that again. This is where Jesus wants his disciples to go. This is where Matthew wants his audience to go, and it's what's there for us today. Do not fear opponents to the kingdom, but fear your sovereign, wrathful, and loving Heavenly Father and confess allegiance to Christ. So we're going to see three sections this morning how this plays out as Jesus gives instructions to his disciples. And the first is this, our first point from verses 24 through 27, and it's this, do not fear, but proclaim to those who mischaracterize the kingdom. Do not fear, but proclaim to those who mischaracterize the kingdom. Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. Now, Jesus is stating some general facts. You remember what a disciple is. A, a disciple is a follower and learner of Jesus Christ. Uh, it's, a disciple is one who's emulating uh, the person, the teacher. Uh, so in this case, Jesus, uh, and learning, uh, not, not only emulating him, but learning him, learning from him, learning his teaching and being, in a sense, his representative. But even, even so, you're in this teacher-student relationship. You're there to learn. You're there to emulate. You're not some more superior than the teacher. That's obvious. And then Jesus brings up a similar sort of relationship, nor a servant. Now, if your Bible says servant, that is an under-translation. The word is literally slave. Nor is a slave above his master. And that would be a very common, uh, both pictures are very common First century picture. There is slavery in Jesus' time. And the reality about all slavery is this, the slave belongs to the master. The slave becomes an extension of the master's will. The slave doesn't have the choice of where to go or what to do. The slave has to obey the master because the slave obeys, it belongs to the master. And Jesus just states a truism, a servant's not, a slave is not above his master. Of course not. Of course not. Where are you going with this, Jesus? Verse 25, it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher. That's the whole point of discipleship. Uh, uh, put it another way, a Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. Everyone who trusts, uh, repents and entrusts themselves to Christ becomes a follower and learner of Christ, and the goal of that is what? To be like Jesus to be like Jesus, to, to see his character, to see him, uh, to follow him and his character and how he interacts with people, but also to listen to his commands and his teaching and to obey them. That is the goal. And it's true. Uh, a disciple is like his teacher and the slave like his master. Now that one might not be as much obvious. There were in the first century good master-slave relationships uh, and of course, uh, what Jesus is doing here might be a little bit surprising. He is characterizing as the relationship between his disciples and him as that of a master to a slave. What's he getting at? When you repent and entrust yourself to Christ, you belong to Jesus like a slave to a master, like a slave to a good master, to the best master. He owns all of you. He determines what you will do and what you will not do. We listen to his commands, and it is a sweet relationship. 
And essentially what happens in that master-slave relationship, and especially with Jesus to his disciples, is that his slaves become an extension of his will, a living tool, a living extension of who he is. Both the disciple and the slave, they represent, they ought to be representing the will and the teaching and the character of the master. And then Jesus draws his conclusion at the end of verse 25. So what is he, he's been just stating facts, but what's he driving to? End of verse 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, by how much more will they malign those of his household? Now let's pick this apart a little bit. Who in the world is Beelzebul? It's not a word we use every day, is it? Beelzebul, what is this? Well, uh, let me do a little bit of work for you. So you ever heard of the guy, uh, uh, a false god in the Old Testament named Baal? Uh, that's who he's referring to, Baal-Zebul, Baal-Zebul. And Zebul is this, um, uh, it's this Semitic word that essentially means exalted abode, or you can think of like a heavenly place. Uh, it could even be the abode of demons. The demons reside in the heavenly places. The rest of scripture talks about that. So what you saw in the Old Testament is that the Israelites would, uh, they were tempted, and the nations around them, you had the Canaanite nations around them, and then the the Israelites were tempted to this, to worshiping Baal-Zebul. And it literally means, Baal just means master or Lord. And so we're worshiping the master, the Lord, the, the exalted God of the heavenly abode. That's what the Canaanites were doing. Even the Israelites were tempted towards that. But what ended up happening from a biblical perspective, from a biblical perspective, all false worship has a demonic origin. All false worship has a demonic origin. And so what happened is they would use the name of the god, Baal-Zebul, um, and they would uh, say, okay, but there's a demon behind that. And here we have Baal, who's supposed to be the most exalted god of the heavenly abode. Well, who's behind that? It's the chief of the demons, namely Satan himself. So when Jesus is talking about this in Baal-Zebul, he's talking about the prince of demons. This has already happened in 9, uh, 32 through 34. You remember that Jesus was healing. He was healing um, a demonic person. He was casting out a demon. He's casting out a demon, but notice how the Pharisees respond in 9:34. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince or master of demons. And then it's going to become more explicit in Matthew 12 because the exact same thing is going to happen. The Pharisees are saying, he casts out demons by Beelzebul. Now, notice what didn't happen. Both in 934 and chapter 12, when you get there, they didn't directly call Jesus Beelzebul, did they? He said, by the power of Beelzebul, by the prince of the demons, he casts out demons, saying what? Jesus, you are aligned with Satan. Satan is the father of your household. So when Jesus is talking about here, if they have called the master of the house, you see the pun, the master of the house, and Baal-Zebul means uh, the master of the exalted abode or the Lord of the exalted, exalted abode. But who's the master of Jesus' house? The father. And they're saying, they've told, G, uh, the, 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 his opponents have said to him, the master of your house, you're aligned with Satan. The master of your house is Satan, when the reality is the master of Jesus' house, is the Father. 
The Father is the Father of the Son. Jesus is the Son. Jesus' disciples are adopted sons and daughters of the Father. So the Father is the master of the house, and yet the opponents of Jesus, the opponents of his disciples, have it completely inverted. They have it completely inverted. And Jesus is saying, look, They've already had this inverted mischaracterization of the kingdom. They think I'm aligned with Satan. They think my father is Satan. Well, you shouldn't expect any better. They're going to mischaracterize you as well. A servant, a slave isn't above their master. A disciple is not above their teacher. It's coming for you too. It's a complete mischaracterization of the kingdom. It's a complete flip of the morals and the reality of the world. It's reversed. Instead of God being the king as he truly is and the master of the household, it's Satan. It's calling evil good and good evil. And that is what happens in a fallen world because the world is set against God and set against Jesus. And so it inverts, it completely inverts the world's morals and actions. And it mischaracterizes. And so if Jesus is going to be mischaracterized, his disciples will be as well. This is just a fact. Jesus just says, this is what's going to happen. You shouldn't expect any better. So he's just been stating facts. What do you do? Okay, if that's true, you're going to be characterized as evil ones. You're going to be called evil. You're going to be called those aligned with Satan. You're going to be called ultimate evil. That's what you're going to be called. How do you respond? Verse 26, therefore, don't be afraid of them. Now, it would be pretty fearful, right, for someone to say, you're aligned with Satan. You are ultimate evil embodied. You are a representative of evil. And Jesus says, but don't be afraid. Why? Well, notice what he says. Notice what he says. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden, that will not be, be known. What's he talking about? What's the concealment that's happening? The concealment is the concealment of reality. The concealment of reality. The world thinks, and the opponents to Jesus and his kingdom think, he's ultimate evil. He's aligned with ultimate evil. Well, that's concealing the truth of reality. And what Jesus says is, don't be afraid of that, because it's ultimately going to be revealed what reality is. Reality, true reality, is going to be unveiled. Nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And he's ultimately talking about the judgment. That's been the context of what he's talked about. He talked about it in verse 15. He talked about it multiple times in this section. The final judgment When God comes and reclaims the world through Jesus, his king, there's going to be a judgment of all people and everything's going to be set right. The topsy-turvy world is going to be put right. It's going to be aligned with reality, with its creator. And Jesus says, don't be afraid because things will come out in the end. They will come out in the end, so don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid when you're called ultimate evil or aligned with ultimate evil when you're called aligned with Satan because it's going to be unveiled. Your father's going to put things right. And so what? What does he tell them to do? He doesn't just tell them not to fear, but he tells them something to do. He says, don't fear, 
But the flip side of that is verse 27. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Essentially what Jesus is saying is, and it's true, he's going to say this in Matthew 13, he gives the secrets of the kingdom to his disciples. We're going to see that in Matthew 13. He's, he's, he's got his group of disciples, and he, the, he's revealing things to them, but only to them, only to his disciples. Yes, he is preaching a, a, a gospel, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near, but he reveals the secrets of the kingdom to his disciples and only to his disciples. He's saying it He's characterizing it as saying it in the dark, as whispering in their ears. So it's, it's, in a sense, concealed. Jesus has concealed the gospel and the secrets of the kingdom to his disciples. But what is he telling them to do? I'm concealing that, but you guys need to reveal it. I'm, I'm telling you in a small way, but you need to blow this thing wide open. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. In other words, uh, the, the, the reality that God will reveal the true nature of things, the true nature of right and wrong and who's on what side in the end, that should actually drive the disciples to do a similar sort of revelation now. Let me tell you about the future. Here's what's really true about the future. Here's the reality of Jesus and his kingdom. And so that what Jesus has concealed and said in a small way, the disciples are going to blow it far and wide, openly, publicly, widely, loudly. That's what they're to do. So the, the contrast here is don't be afraid, but speak, but speak, because that's the core of their mission, to proclaim the gospel, to preach. That word for proclaim there, remember, it's the word, we, we sometimes translate it preach, but it's the idea of proclaiming as a herald, proclaiming as a representative of the king. And I will remind you, that we talk about sharing the gospel, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we are proclaimers of the gospel. We don't get to negotiate on the message. We don't get to change the message. We just are faithful messengers, representatives of the king. Our wills are not our own. We can't negotiate, but we proclaim. This is the truth. This is the truth from Jesus. And so what's there for us as we think through this? Don't be surprised when you are mischaracterized as evil for the sake of Christ. It's going to happen. It already is happening. The world hates Christ and God, and so its view of reality and morals is inverted. It's inverted. Let me give you an example. I was telling the folks in Equipping of Hour about this this, last, this morning. And uh, this last Thursday, uh, so Ashley and I, in the last few weeks, we've been taking this uh, foundations training for foster care or um, foster adoption. So either way, whether you're going to adopt or whether you're going to foster care, you have to take the same training. This last Thursday, 90% of the training was LGBTQ plus stuff. And to the point where it's on record on the state, the state is saying this, if you have a child in your home, or even if you're going to adopt a child, maybe the child's really young, and they'll ask you the question, if the child comes out in the future, will you support and endorse what they are doing? Not just tolerate, but actively support it. And if you won't, you will not be certified. You will not adopt. 
That is happening. It is a complete inversion of morals. So, you know, on one level, the, the people are involved in that in DHS. They do it out of care. They, lo- they do care for kids. They want to see them safe and well. And the gal is, you know, asking, well, what do you guys think about this? What do you guys think about this after each video? And, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting there struggling through all of this. And it wasn't the appropriate time to speak right then and there because it would have just derailed the whole conversation and been disrespectful. But I got to speak. I'll have to send a letter and say, we're dropping out. We can't go on with this because of this reason. As a representative, as an ambassador, not, not as a pastor, but as just a representative Christian of the kingdom, we are dropping out, and this is why. And what they are calling, if I was to try to convert or preach the gospel to a child struggling with such things, they would call that conversion therapy, and it is prohibited. It is evil. It is doing harm to the child. That is how it is characterized. It is a complete inversion. And so I, if I was to do that, I would be characterized as an evil one. And what Jesus is saying is, it's just, a, it's just one particular example of this. And Jesus is saying, don't be surprised. It's happening. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of the inverted world and what it can do to you. Even kill you. Jesus is very forthright. He's going to talk more about this. Yeah, the world can kill me. But don't be afraid, even to that point. But speak. Speak as Christ's ambassadors. Openly. Plainly. Loudly. And widely. And you, you, you know that, that feeling. I had that feeling on Thursday. Is this the time to speak or is it not? Should I speak up or not? But we want to be bold in the right setting. And we want to be not afraid but to speak. To not fear but to proclaim to those who mischaracterize the kingdom. Second, verse 28 through 31, we see this. Do not fear those who can only kill, but fear the sovereign father. Do not fear those who can only kill, but fear the sovereign father. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Okay, so he's talking about the persecutors. And even in the last section, they talked about handing, handing uh, the disciples over to, uh, to religious and political authorities for the purpose of death. Even those closest to you, even those in the whole, your own household, they're going to hand you over to the authorities for death, to be put to death by the state. And Jesus is saying, don't fear those who can kill the body. He's very explicit. They're aiming at killing you, but, and yeah, they can kill you, but what? They cannot kill the soul. The scripture talks about the person as an inner man and an outer man, an inner person and an outer person. We have an immaterial inner part to us and an outer Uh, We normally call that the soul, and then this body, this physical side of us. And God created us to be both souls and bodies. It's not that our true self is the soul. Uh, We're designed to be both. We're designed to be soul, soul and body united in a complex unity. And yet, what Jesus is saying 
is they can kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. The soul is more important. But remember the last contrast? Don't fear, but what? Speak? Notice the contrast here. Do not fear those who kill the body, but can, uh, cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear. Fear who? Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The contrast here is not between fear and fear. It's who you fear. Who you fear. There is a right fear in the world. There is a right fear in the world. And what Jesus is saying is God, God who can destroy. Now notice this, not just the soul, but also the body, both body and soul in hell. You do know that everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected, not just Christians. Everyone who has ever lived will be resurrected, not just Christians. Daniel 12, 1 through 2 talks about uh, there will be a resurrection of everyone, but, and Jesus affirms this in John 5, some to a resurrection of life and some to a resurrection of everlasting shame. And that is what we call hell. For God's justice Remember what sin is. To understand hell, you have to understand sin. Sin is not just doing naughty things. It's not just disobeying a few laws or rules. It is a personal offense to the God of the universe, who is infinitely worthy, infinitely just, infinitely righteous, infinitely beautiful, infinitely majestic, and deserves and demands our worship. And so if I slap an infinitely worthy being in the face, I am worthy of an infinite punishment, which is why hell is just. And we all start that way. We all start. I deserve eternal damnation at a whole, the, the hands of a holy God because I've offended him through my sin. I have been a rebel. I've stood against his kingdom And you ought to fear, and the reality is God will destroy both body and soul in hell. A resurrected body perfectly suited for everlasting destruction and torment. The Bible does not pull punches. Jesus doesn't pull punches when he talks about God's justice. And that, my friends, is the most terrifying reality in existence. It's real, and it's coming. And so, think about what he's saying here. Disciple, you have a choice. You're preaching the gospel, and there are going to be people that come against you and say, stop it, you're evil. Stop saying that. That's conversion therapy. That's harming people. And you have a choice. You have a choice in that moment. You have a choice to say, okay, I'm going to stop speaking. That's all it takes. Just stop speaking. Or I fear God. You can kill me, you can execute me, but you can't kill my soul. And I fear the God who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Friends, this this intersects with this idea, this very biblical idea of the fear of God. It's laced throughout all of Scripture. Let's talk about that for a minute, the fear of God. What is the fear of God? It's actually, it's like, it feels weird to talk about the fear of God especially as Christians, because aren't we, we're supposed to love God. Uh, What's this business about fearing? 
Well, give me, let me give you a brief definition and then let's, let's, let's unpack it. What does the fear of God do? The fear of God beholds God's greatness in all of his character and all of his attributes, including, but not limited to, his just wrath against sin and sinners. God, we see all of God's greatness, all of his characters, his love, his justice, his righteousness, his mercy, his grace. We see all of that, and what the fear of God does, the fear of God responds to that greatness with proper emotion, including terror, and action. So right emotion and right action. So those are three components. We see God's greatness in all of what it is, the glimpses that God gives us of it, And then the fear of God responds with right emotion, including terror, and right action, namely obedience. So let's think about this uh, for a minute. Let's think about this in the case of different people. Let's think of someone who doesn't know God. Maybe let's say someone who's an atheist, or at least claims to be an atheist. So someone claims to be an atheist, they're like, God doesn't even exist. I'm not afraid of him. Well, Scripture says in Romans 1 that everyone knows that God exists. They've perceived his greatness through the creation. But what they do is they suppress that truth. So there's no right emotion nor right action on someone who's denying that God exists. Essentially, what they've done is they're fearing the creation or the fear of missing out. Maybe that's another way we could put it. Rather than seeing God and responding to his greatness with right emotion and right fear. But then there's other people who perceive and know that the biblical God exists and that he will punish sin, and there is terror, there is terror, but they only perceive part of God's character. They only see him as a God of wrath, and they hate him. They know that God is there. They know that God's going to punish sin, but they view him as an angry God, an uncontrolled God that's just ready to pounce on them and crush them. And so the fear of God, they have a terror. They do have a terror. That's right, because God will punish sin. And yet it's twisted because it's drawing them away from God rather than to God. Which brings us to what is a right fear of God? A right fear of God is to say, we see God in all of his greatness, including his wrath and his justice and his goodness and his love and all of his attributes, And a true fear says, I am a sinner. I have offended a holy God. God will destroy me. And yet, I've got an infinite problem on my hands. I have slapped the face of an infinitely worthy God, so I deserve an infinite punishment. I'm a finite creature. I can't solve that. I can't try to appease God with all of my works, all my good things, all my good intentions. I can't do it. So where's the only solution lie? The only infinite being in existence, namely God. The right fear of God does not draw us away from God, but towards God. And it understands that God is not only angry at sin, but gracious and good. And that at great cost to himself, he has provided a way for sinners to draw near to him. And in a sense, God's grace is more fearful than his fury. Because a grace that can wipe out my sin, my infinite sin, and can draw me to a holy God, that is indeed terrifying. 
It's terrifying in a good way. It's a positive terror that draws me to God. And how that plays out, so, so as, as a believer, and this is just a specific application of that and what Jesus is doing here, as a believer, when I sin, am I afraid any longer of experiencing God's wrath? No, if I'm in Christ, because Christ experienced that wrath in my place. But I understand the depth of what my sin deserves, and that is terrifying. I still understand the depth of what my sin deserves. That is terrifying, but it, I draw near to God through Jesus Christ. And so terror is very real. It is good and healthy to be afraid of God, just like a nuclear reactor. Nuclear reactor is good. It gives energy, but you don't dare cross it or treat it wrongly, which helps you to respect it, to use it rightly. In a similar way, obviously that's a very inferior analogy, but, but God is not to be crossed. And that's the imagery here. I'm a disciple and I have a choice to stay silent or to speak. And the fear of God and the terror of God is a tool and a means that God uses to say, God's more terrifying than you are, so I'm going to speak. But notice that Jesus doesn't just stop at terror. That's not where he stops, because it's not just that we see one aspect of who God is, it's all of who God is, and Jesus expounds on that more. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Um, the penny here is the one-sixteenth of a, day a day's labor, a wage for a day laborer, one-sixteenth. So you've got these small little birds for small little money. And Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Of course they are. And what does he say? And not one of them will fall to the ground. And the idea is fall to the ground in a snare, so they're being trapped. Will not fall to the ground apart from your father. So the person is setting a snare. He's getting a couple sparrows. He's taking them to the market. And he's putting them for sale for small birds for a small wage. And yet, what is, what is Jesus saying? That doesn't happen apart from God being behind it. Everything that happens in the world ultimately has God behind it. He's decreed all things to happen. Now, he doesn't do all things. He doesn't do evil at all, never. But he is behind even the smallest of things in the world. And Jesus says, you should draw comfort from that. Look at verse 31. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. One commentator I read this week described it this way. You're more value than heaps of sparrows. So you can just imagine a pile of little birds that are worth a little bit of money. And he's saying, you're worth way more than that. You're worth way more than that. So what do we see here? We've seen God's wrath, but we see also his sovereignty and his goodness and his love and his care for his people. And all of those things Help the disciple to not fear people who can only kill the body, but to fear God, to fear God and to love God. The love of God and the fear of God are not incompatible. They're totally compatible. Because God, not only is God wrathful, he is sovereign and he is good. Now, does that mean, is Jesus saying, well, therefore, you're home free. Nothing's going to happen to you because God's sovereign and God's good. No, he's saying, even if you die, and die you might, 
Many of them, we can just look at the lives of the apostles. We're died, we're tortured, we're persecuted. And yet the comfort was God's behind this. He's not absent from this. He's, he's for me even through the harm. He's for me even through the harm because even through that, he is displaying the message and his glory. So what do we draw from this? Don't fear people and circumstances. I mean, we've been told and taught day in and day out last couple years, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid, because why? You're going to die or you're going to cause someone else to die. Now, I don't want to cause anyone to die. That's not the, that's not the point. But, the, but there's a greater fear, the fear of God. People and circumstances can only kill your body. As disciples, we can only die, but not in an eternal way. People can only kill your body, but not your soul. There are greater things at stake in life than physical life. Listen to a brother. We've quoted this a couple times uh, when we've given updates of Ukraine. And one of the Ukrainian pastors, I, th I think this is a quote that should go down in history. Listen to what he says. Here's a, here's a guy that there's a foreign overwhelming force invading his country saying, I'm staying here to pastor my people. And listen to what he says. I love this. But as Christians, we are not here to survive. As, but as Christians, we are not here to survive. We are here to love the Lord our God. Uh, to love the Lord with all our hearts and to joyously give everything we've got towards the fame of the Almighty. That is right and good and worthy of emulation. That is who we are. Maybe you're here this morning and you're like, I, I, don't want, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with Christianity. This is boring, whatever. I, I, I don't know. But friend, if you are not repenting and entrusting yourself to Jesus Christ, you have only to wait for God's wrath. That's your only expectation for the future. And that is terrifying indeed. And you need to be very, very afraid. You need to be terrified for your soul. And you need to come to Jesus Christ. The one, the God-man, who became uh, God who became flesh, he lived the perfect human life. And he died for his people on the cross so that anyone who would entrust themselves to him, that debt, that infinite debt of sin would be wiped out and the infinite righteousness of Jesus Christ would be placed in their account so that they could draw near to a holy God. And so if that has not happened to you, you need to talk. You need to talk to someone around you. You need to talk to me, Steve, Jim, whoever, some member of this church, talk to them and they can help you understand the gospel. And for all of us, as we proclaim the gospel, as, as, as emissaries of Jesus, we see that God is the sovereign and loving Father and has ordained all the circumstances that we go through for his glory and our good. So, we need to not fear, but proclaim to those who mischaracterize the kingdom. We need to not fear those who can only kill, but fear the sovereign Father. And finally, you need to confess your allegiance to Christ publicly for him to confess you. You need to confess your allegiance to Christ publicly 
for him to confess you. Look at verse 31, or excuse me, verse 32. Jesus says, therefore, uh, and he's summing up what he just said in this section. He's summing up what he just said, therefore. Now, every of this, remember what we said, each of these sections in chapter 10 ends with a promise. They've been introduced so far with, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable for uh, the Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. He's looking ahead to the future, and he's saying, uh, keep, do this now, because here's what the future holds. And then last week, um, truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all of the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes, which again is looking ahead to that same picture of the future, of the coming of Jesus, of the judgment of God, and the judgment of Christ. And truly I say to you is not used to end this section, but it's very clear in verses 32 and 33, Jesus is looking ahead to that same judgment, that same future judgment. And this is what he says, therefore, Everyone who will confess by me before people, I also will confess by him before my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's this language of confession? What is this? Well, every other time that Matthew uses the word for confess, the same word that he uses here, it's always in the context of a legal oath-taking environment. You see this in Matthew 7.23. Remember that Matthew 7.23, Jesus ends the Sermon on the Mount. He says, uh, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will inherit the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Truly, I say to you, there will be many who say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things, all these flashy things in your name? And he said, I will declare. Actually, it's the word confess. I will confess. And he's before, the idea is it's before the judgment seat. It's very public. And Jesus is saying, he will confess, I never knew you. It's the same scene that he's talking about here. You see the same word used again, not of Jesus, but of Herod in uh, Matthew 14, 7. It's the same word. And you remember you've got Herod's niece that she dances and, and uh, Herod's like, I'm gonna, he says publicly and he swears with an oath he confesses before a crowd, I'm going to give you everything, anything up to half my kingdom. That's, and he uses the word confess. It's the same word here. So what is this word confess? It's the idea of a public, almost an oath-taking sort of environment. If you were to boil it down, we could use a word we've used a lot in Matthew, allegiance. This kind of confession is a pledge of allegiance to Christ. So what he's saying is, therefore, everyone who pledges allegiance to me before people, I will pledge my allegiance, my solidarity with, before my Father who is in heaven. It's very public. Jesus has in mind a public confession that Jesus is my King, Jesus is my Lord. What is Jesus thinking about here? He's thinking about what? Their public proclamation. They're going around as representatives of the king, and they're saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. So part of that confession is just their proclamation. It's demonstrable that Jesus' disciples, they're living a life, and they're speaking a message as ambassadors of the king. 
And so to demonstrate allegiance before people, Jesus is first and foremost, at least in this context, thinking of their proclamation of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. Sometimes we think about religion, don't we usually say religion's a private matter, right? It's between me and God. Jesus doesn't think it's a private matter. He thinks it's a public matter. He wants public confessors, public, those who will swear allegiance to him in public. It's going to be public either way. What you do now is public. Whether you th- what's the opposite? Let's see the opposite. But whoever denies me, verse 33, but whoever denies me before people, I also will deny him before my Father and is in heaven. It's public either way. Public now means public in the future. You can't avoid the public nature of God's judgment seat before the God of the universe and before every other human being. That's going to be as public as it gets, folks. Public now determines public later. What would it look like to not confess Christ in this case? Just be silent. Just be silent, and you're not confessing Christ. And if you're not confessing Christ, what are you doing? You're denying him. You stay silent and say, okay, you're threatening me with persecution. You're threatening me with death. I give up. I'm just going to stay silent. I'm just going to keep it between me and Jesus. You're denying him, and you will, he will deny you on that day of judgment. But you confess him. You swear allegiance to him publicly. And he will confess you on that day of judgment. Father, that one is mine. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. They've confessed me. They swore allegiance to me. You're public now. Even if you stay silent, that's a public act. If you stay silent, that's a public act. Public now means public later. As we draw implications from this, religion is not a private matter. Christ desires his disciples to publicly confess and demonstrate allegiance to him because his kingdom is a public affair. We often say, well, you know, Christianity is not a, it's, it's not about politics. Yes, it is. It's about Jesus Christ coming and reigning over the whole world and having all submitted to him and bowing the knee to him. That's as political as it gets. It's as public as it gets. Christ desires his disciples to publicly confess and demonstrate allegiance to him because his kingdom is a public affair. We demonstrate that public allegiance as kingdom ambassadors proclaiming the message of our great king in public. If we're silent, we are actively denying our allegiance to Christ. Now, you might ask the question, well, wait a minute, how do we first go public with our allegiance to Christ? How do we, okay, I, uh, you know, I entrust myself to Christ, and that saves me, I get that, but how do I go public? Baptism. That's why Jesus ends the book by saying, go make disciples. How do you do that? By baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because baptism is public. 
Baptism is going public with your faith for Jesus, and you're saying, I am identified in my, I'm dying with Christ. What Christ did on the cross and dying for me, I'm identifying with that and dying to my old self. And just like Christ was raised from the dead, I'm being resurrected. You're going public. You're confessing. You're saying, Jesus is my Lord. And the church, as the local embassy, is saying, yes, by all that we can see, this is a disciple of Christ. And we affirm that this person is going public for Jesus. This is why baptism is so important. Baptism doesn't save, but it depicts our union with Christ in his death and resurrection, which does save. Our union with his death and his resurrection is what does save us. It is done in the embassy of the local church that it is a public before kingdom witnesses and the greater world. I looked up I'd heard this before, but I wanted to make sure it was real. In Muslim countries, they go after people who have been baptized. There was an article about uh, 15 Christians. They were coming back from being baptized, and they were slaughtered by Muslim extremists because they went public, because they went public, and they swore allegiance to Jesus. And what? Those folks, would, if they were here today, they would probably say, we only lost our lives but our souls are more precious, and Jesus is more precious. That's why if you're not willing to be baptized in a public way, I don't know who you are. Because with your lips, you're professing Christ, but with your actions, you're denying him. Because you're unwilling to go public. But here's the story. Here's the, it's not the end of the story. You might be saying, I'm done. I mean, haven't we all? Uh, I've stayed silent when I should have spoken up. I, I haven't done what I've ought to do. I've denied Christ in my words or my actions. And you might start to think, it's all over. I'm done. No, it's not. Because the very same words of denial that are spoken of here, they were used of Peter. Peter denied Christ, didn't he? Very publicly. And yet what happened? Christ's grace and restoration to him. He denied Christ, yet the grace of Christ and the power of Christ's death and resurrection was stronger than that denial and restored him. So repent and entrust yourself to Christ. You felt that way. I've, I've denied Christ by my actions. I've denied him by my words. Repent and entrust yourself to Christ as Peter did publicly professing allegiance to him. There is grace. That is the gospel and what Jesus does. And as we look forward to the future, if you have sworn allegiance to Christ and are persecuted and even killed for your allegiance, take comfort from the fact that Christ will own you at the judgment seat before his Father. Isn't that comforting? If we keep that in mind, that Christ will own me, I'm his, he will own me at the judgment seat because I have publicly confessed allegiance to him, that is the most comforting thing in the world. Do not fear opponents to the kingdom, but fear your sovereign, wrathful, and loving Heavenly Father and confess allegiance to Christ. Let's pray. Christ, you are lovely, you are worthy of all praise and all of our allegiance with our whole lives. Please forgive us. Lord, we know, I confess, and 
we, many of us would confess that this week, through staying silent, through our actions, we've denied you, and yet we confess those things and we trust the same, you are the same Christ that restored Peter, that gave him grace, that overwhelmed his denial with grace. And we thank you for that. We trust you, Lord Jesus. Oh, Lord, if there are any here today who have not confessed you, have not sworn allegiance to you, Lord, would you, Holy Spirit, convict them for the purpose of drawing you to them yourself because you are good and kind and majestic and just, loving, merciful, wrathful, all of it. You are all of those things. And we trust you and we love you. In the name of Jesus, amen.